Hello and welcome. My name's Andrew Horsford and this is another episode of The Messy Middle, a podcast designed for leaders looking for insights, ideas or inspiration about what it takes to deliver results in a demanding context. You can learn more or stay up to date at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. Dan Gregory and Kieran Flanagan are the two brilliant minds behind the new groundbreaking book, Forever Skills. In this often smart and savvy episode, we sat down to discuss the 12 essential skills that will help you become fit for the future of work, as well as secure your success in work and life today. In researching the book, Dan and Kieran interviewed hundreds of successful business people, educators, futurists and economists to uncover the key skills that will always be critical in life and business. In this episode, you'll discover what skills matter most, where you should focus your energy and effort when the world is changing at such an extraordinary rate, and how you can future-proof yourself, your organisation, as well as your kids. This conversation really highlights Kieran and Dan's expertise in commercial creativity and behavioural strategy providing a blend of knowledge and insights that both educates as well as entertains. I know you're going to gain a lot from listening to this episode, so let's jump straight into the conversation. Dan and Kieran, welcome to The Messy Middle. It's a real treat to be able to talk with you uh, both. When thinking of of winning combinations, um, gin and tonic, wine and cheese, an open road and a Harley-Davidson, Flanagan and Gregory, they're just proven combinations that have worked over a long period of time. So I wanted to ask and maybe start with you, Kieran, about how did you two meet and what has been the secret to sustaining such a great working relationship? (laughs) Well, we met, gosh, 25 years ago or so. We were both doing well Dan had actually completed it but at the time advertising school uh called award and we met in something called masterclass and masterclass was where they took the top students out of award it was run by a guy called George Betzis who was our first boss and he was using it as a very clever headhunting technique where he'd take the top students and run them through an intensive survival-based, uh, only the smartest and most willing to sacrifice themselves day and night would get the gig. And Dan had accomplished the feat the year before and uh, I was the following year. So we we kind of were thrown together in a way, but I think there was a lot of commonality in our work ethic and the speed of our thinking We both like to uh, think quickly and across a broad range of topics. And I think that was always, we recognised quite quickly that uh, worked really well in our relationship. And that's certainly been true about when you look at your list of clients as well as the type of work you're doing. It's it's very diverse. It reflects that innate ability that connects you both, isn't it? I mean, do you want to maybe give people a bit of a context about some of the different work that you you both do and have done together. I think one of the one of the things that keeps our that keeps us interested in the work we do is the diversity of the work. You know, we've we've kind of come from a consulting background where you know we worked with a huge range of. I mean, there's there's almost not a, an industry sector that we haven't worked with over the past you know twenty five to thirty years. Um, and some of that was was in a consulting and a strategic and creative role. Um, but then we also have a you know a training business and a speaking business where we 
we travel the world and we and we train people in in leadership skills and and you know how how they how they make change work how they make change you know a positive experience and i think that's one of the things that keeps us interested i i think both kieran and i are very broadly read i mean i get through maybe 300 books a year um and i i also think that the the breadth of the experience that we had you know working with a different client every day was actually really important and it's it's an unusual experience most people tend to work in an industry sector for you know a, a long period of time and only work within that sector i think we were really lucky in that our initial um foray into the advertising world gave us you know, we worked with with government. We worked with FMCG. We worked with the financial industry. It actually gave us a real breadth of experiences and um, and allowed us to see the connections between industries, which I think was important. And one of the things I admire about the, the work that you do do is, and it's a bit counterintuitive to the normal consulting approach, but you tend to work with human behaviour rather than against it. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about? you know, why that is and where that philosophy came from for you both? Kieran, maybe if you want to kick that off. Of course. Uh, So I think for us, we, you know, while we had advertising careers, both of us shared a, a very common interest in human beings. And if you really sort of strip advertising back, you understand it's a massive human behaviour experiment. It's how do you get people to do things and change their thinking and want things they didn't even know they wanted. And a lot of that, to do that well, you need to not judge people in the sense of making them wrong, but we say how do we make people right? And if we presume people are correct and we take our opinions off that, how do we actually use that behaviour to get them where we want them versus trying to fight against it? You know, like in Australia, well, actually all around the world, if you ever taught to swim in the ocean, you're told if you get caught in a rip not to swim against it, you're told to go with the current and you actually get out of the rip. And we think working with people is, is a bit the same. Whenever we try to go against the grain of human nature, it actually takes a whole lot of work that you constantly have to redo. You get frustrated that people are stupid or that they're wrong or they just are incompetent competent and you don't get a good result. So for us, we always go, how do we how do we presume that people's behavior is the way it is? And how do we design the systems and processes around that to actually get us a better result? Yeah, it's a great take, isn't it? I, I don't know who to attribute to the, the quote to, but there was a quote along something like the one thing people resist more than change is the coercion to change. <laughs> I think there's something in that. I, I love that approach that you both take for your work? Kieran's right. It is about removing judgment, but it's also about allowing people to sort of meet you where they're at. One of the one of the great, uh, I think, fallacies of the business world is that we need people to be 100% motivated all of the time. And even our best, you know, team members are not 100% motivated all the time. They might be ill. They might have a sick child at home. They might have had a fight with their spouse. You know, so we've kind of got to engineer our systems and our leadership such that people can deliver the result we need them to, independ- almost independent of the the amount of motivation they feel. And 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 I think when 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 you look at behavioural change programs, the most successful ones make success easier and make failure more difficult. So an example of that is an enforced savings account. What we you know what we know from working with. Um, financial institutions all around the world is the only time people save money and keep it 
is when it's taken out of their salary before they see it and put into an account they have limited access to. In other words, when you design the system in such a way that failure becomes a more difficult proposition, you know, success tends to increase. Which uh, which leads into the book, um, which I wanted to spend most of the time talking about, uh, Forever Skills. It's such a great read and I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I really liked was your you picked a fight in the first paragraph around change being the only constant in life. So I wanted to ask and maybe direct this to you, Kieran, to start is what are we up against and what are you taking a stand for in this book? For us, this book came out of so many conversations with businesses in panic, organisations in panic, individuals in those companies in panic, parents in panic about the the amount of change we're facing and this uncertain future in which robots will take over the world and our children won't have jobs and we won't have jobs and everything will fall apart, that the only thing we can count on is change and we have zero control in a sense over that change. It's happening to us. And we didn't think that was a very useful frame to have um, on the world. So we wanted to write a book that said, hey, Let's take a breath. Let's get some perspective. The world has changed ever since the beginning of the world and that there's some skills that will be forever useful. There's some things that have determined success way back in ancient times and will continue to determine success into the future. And sure, there's what we call skills of the age. Of course, there's, the, you know, once upon a time riding a horse or riding with pen and ink or being able to start a fire if you're a cave person was really important, but there's things beyond that that drive success and we need to start having a conversation and include in our change panic a conversation around the things that will be forever. And you talk about sort of three spheres of change, not just change as, as one dimension. Dan, maybe could you tell us what they are and how they relate to each other? Yeah, I think that's a really, you know, a core component of this book is realising that that change is more than just trends, change is more than just fads, change is more than just technology. Um, and, and we tend, so when we talk about the three spheres of change, there's sort of sphere number one, which gets 90% of our attention, which is what is changing. And that's kind of, you know, the, the stuff that happens to us. Sphere number two is what needs changing, which is where we tend to focus our innovation efforts, where we look to develop our own new technologies. But the third sphere of change is sort of the, you know, what is unchanging. And that gets almost no attention. You know, the metaphor we use to describe it is it's like it's like the, the girls in the Brady Bunch. You know, what is changing is Marsha Brady. It gets all of the attention. <laughs> what needs changing is what's new and shiny. That's kind of Cindy Brady. You get some attention, but then... The third sphere, which gets no attention, is kind of the Jan Brady. And the the opportunity there is is to actually focus on all three spheres. But what we've found is that the, the third sphere of change, what is unchanging, sort of aligns quite well with Dr. Stephen Covey's uh, not urgent but important quadrant in his quadrant model. Um, in other words, the more time we invest in what is unchanging, the more control we have in the other two spheres as well. And... What we really wanted to do, as Kieran said, was remove some of the panic around change and say, actually, you know, change is broader than just the the uh, the, the winds of change that are sort of blowing against us. And we can actually have some control. Uh, we can actually 
in, invest in a way that's that that that, that pays a dividend. Because I mean, if we're learning, as Kieran said, age-based skills, whether it be riding a horse, riding with pen and ink, or in, you know, today it's probably coding. You know, those are going to be time-dependent skills, um, and and they're worth investing in. However, there's a a greater need to invest in skills that will will serve us you know, beyond, say, a, a 10-year period. And that's kind of what we wanted to identify is if you're going to train, invest in training your team, if you're going to, going to invest in your own education or in your children's education, you know, where would that best be focused? What's your perspective on holding that tension between the skills of today and the, and the forever skills in developing what's relevant and needed to have a platform for performance for tomorrow and what's needed versus developing these forever skills? We think you need both, and we. But again, we think they interplay really wonderfully. And I guess the ultimate forever skill, if you you know, overarching the book is the ability to constantly learn, and that's never changed. You know, human beings are designed for it. We get lazy around it because our brains are heuristic, and we tend to get very repetitive, and we forget to learn new things. So that ability to learn new skills will always matter and it's sort of an it's a forever skill in itself but yeah we've got a whole tension between both spheres when it's saying ignore one and only focus on the other however the forever skills will have potential more longer lifespan so are, are very useful to invest in particularly you know if your child's entering kindergarten this year we can't envision what that future really looks like that far out with the rate of technology and change. Well, you know, coding, computers are likely to go quantum, you know, which fundamentally changes the whole the whole structure anyway. So people are obsessing about the wrong things in our opinion. There's a reason that futurists and economists don't offer money-back guarantees, uh, and that's no one can really predict the future. We can make some educated guesses. And what we're looking for is, well, what's going to matter no matter what changes? And... Kieran and I like to play a game where we, we say, can AI do it um, with, with organisations and, and, <laughs> and industries that we work with? And, and everyone's obsessed with coding at the moment. You go, well, you know, very soon AI, well, AI has already demonstrated the ability to self-code and invent its own language that is more efficient and more um, and, and can be executed more quickly than any human coder can. So we know that in a very short period of time, you know, Computers will will be self coding, um, and and that's what we found is that those age based skills or epoch based skills are actually becoming shorter and shorter lived as as we advance. So that's going to be a really um, interesting question for for anyone who works in training or education going forward. Is you know well where do where do we invest the time? Uh, you know we were speaking with some hairdressers recently, and they said, well, you know a computer or a robot could never do what we do. And we said, well, actually, there's a really sensitive uh, surgical machine called the Da Vinci machine that can do operations on on the back of the eye um, and can actually tell when you're going to flinch before you know you're going to flinch and will pull away. Um, so we're pretty sure it can cut hair if it can you know, perform an operation on the back of an eye. Um, and we also Ooh. know that AI could scan every um, uh, it, it, every image that's that's on social media scan for your face shape and your facial and hair colouring and decide which hairstyle gets the most likes or the most right swipes and then present you a Photoshop version of those half a dozen different hairstyles in a way that no hairdresser could actually do. So so even things that we think about as being really um, 
people-based, you know, there's there's still uh, they're still going to have to compete with certain aspects of of technology. So it's about finding well, what's the what's the value that's that's fundamental to those industries that will always matter. And you know, in other words, what's the lens that we project our innovation and our advancement through? When we talk about artificial intelligence and the future, most people are it's the machines are going to take our our jobs, and not necessarily that. How do we adapt and embrace what machines can do and just like you've explained Dan to enhance the experience or enhance what we're delivering to customers or the interface that we provide as opposed to that industries are going to to fall over one by one so I think it's a really nice perspective for for people to keep considering we've been adapting as, as a species for our survival and success for so long and you referred to that a bit earlier Kieran why do we dread change so much and find it so difficult to navigate because we've been doing it for so long? It's because of our wiring. So we're, we're wired to create patterns and repeat. It makes us incredibly successful as a species. So we, we want to set and forget and add on top, not go back and unset. So it's actually the go back and relearn stuff that becomes incredibly challenging. And change also was often threatening you know, new berries, new species uh, were often dangerous. So, again, we have an unconscious resistance to the unfamiliar. We, it could kill us back in a survival sense. So you've got this sort of duality of a brain wired to repeat and a brain afraid of new, and you get a really strong resistance to change. It sort of changed very quickly. I mean, if you think about it, 200 years ago, a sort of mild xenophobia was actually a reasonably sensible or logical position to take. You know, you had reason to be suspicious of foreigners because they weren't tourists. They were typically showing up to, you know, take something from you. However, in the 20th century, when we're all living in multicultural countries, that kind of suspicion of, of foreigners no longer makes sense. But we're still running, you know, the old cognitive software that we had 200 years ago which is why you see such, you know, that you know that rise in in xenophobia and that fear of foreigners and that fear of immigrants. Even though it doesn't make logical sense anymore, we're still running a lot of that old patterning simply because change has happened so quickly and people are struggling to adapt to it. So, I think the fear of the fear of change is is actually an incredibly normal and human thing. Um, we've just got to be a little bit more intelligent about. Well, actually, does that does that still make sense? Or are we, you know, acting on a belief system that's actually based on on a world that no longer exists? And you know what we've found, it when we run the three spheres of change and we do it in a workshop environment is you immediately feel the exhale in the room. So people go, oh, I feel better already. Because I've looked at change from, you know, a broader perspective and, you know, so often we don't, we just, you know, we, we get myopic, we focus on that single this is coming and this is changing, that we forget the, the fundamental need for our service, for example, won't change. The delivery, if you look at Australia Post or the postal service, you know, in itself, will the need to get stuff from one place to another change? No. Like we're still going to move stuff. Yes, who knows, it could become Star Trek and we could beam it from one place to another, but essentially the, the fundamental need won't go away. So the more they see that, it actually, A, helps you then innovate back, 
uh, but it also creates this just a sense of perspective, which is hugely important to individuals and organisations for them to do good work and, and to focus on the things that they can make a difference in. And I think that's a really good point. You know, our our default positioning is is fear-based. You know, it's it's to avoid risk, you know, and that's how we survived as a species. Um, and, and I, you know, I think you can see politicians understand that and, uh, and products and companies understand that too in the way that they sell is, is we tend to act out of fear first. And what we're really looking to do is say, actually, let's remove some of that fear because, actually, because there's more intelligent decisions can be made and let's elevate some of this conversation. Let's remove some of the irrational fears. Um, and part of the way we do that is by giving people a sense of confidence about what they can hold on to. I mean, there's there's a whole raft of of research into change management and change leadership theory that says if you want people to buy in change, emphasise what's familiar to them, emphasise what they already understand. And it's why things like um, metaphors are such a useful um, way of explaining a new concept to someone. You know, you know, we just use the Brady Bunch metaphor. And what that does is it links a new concept to a concept that yes. you already understand, which allows you to, to process it more easily. And, and even though you're learning something new, it's based in something that you already understand. So your own sense of competence goes up and your confidence, you know, you know correlates to competence. It's a really nice link into the book where you mentioned about updating our, our cognitive software as opposed to just a capability. This is a, it's going a little bit deeper to rewire some of how we're seeing things and, and moving away from the data we're getting that may be wrong or the, the perception that we have that may be outdated but has once served us but may not serve us into the future. It's a beautiful way you've done that threaded through the book. We notice this kind of gravitation to familiarity um, everywhere. I mean, one of the, you know, if you've ever travelled the world, and if you're in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, often, oftentimes you can often feel unsure of yourself, and um, and and sort of you, you feel like you have less, less power in the situation. And then all of a sudden, you hear what sounds like crows in the distance, and you realise there are Australians nearby, okay. and you kind of gravitate to that sound. And all of a sudden, you meet people. You speak the same language. You have a commonality of, of culture, and all of a sudden, your confidence increases. And and we experience exactly the same thing in any kind of change, whether it be commercial change, whether it be social change, whether it be cultural change. It, the more you can create possibilities and opportunities is incredibly important. But we also need to create anchors and um, and and steadfast points that people can hold on to, so that they don't feel like they're in complete freefall. I just wanted to touch on on how beautifully researched the book is. I mean, you've spoke with a number of experts and industry leaders across industries, as you referenced before, Dan, around your your reach within multiple industries and celebrities and sports people. Did anything take you by surprise or catch you off guard in doing that research and coming up with this, the skills or themes that you have? I think what was fascinating was we, we had – a hypothesis, I guess, about what they might be. So we originally wrote our own list and then we went and, and look, you know, there's so much research in this book. Not everybody who contributed is in there. There's lots of conversations held at conferences with audiences and, and rooms and CEOs and, you know, running training. Uh, they didn't all make it in there. So what was interesting that nothing was really a hard skill. 
you know, everything was probably lent more to the soft side. I think we thought more people would give us frameworks that were uh, really technically led and no one did. And we, we asked a number of questions in that research, things like, what do you think has made the biggest difference to your success in life and in your chosen field? You know, what are, what are the differentiators for you? What What were the key things? If you could capture those skills, what would they be? And I think that became just a fascinating conversation, how when people were asked that question, how they really stripped away their, well, I was good at swimming or I was technically good at this and that. It became at some level we all achieve a base level of competence in, in most fields if you work hard enough and, and you're in a job long enough. But the thing that took you from competent to extraordinary were these forever skills. And I think we found that just really eye-opening and when people really need to understand this because we're potentially focusing on the wrong things for our children and for our teams. I actually think the thing I found really surprising was I actually enjoyed the process. Um, which I wasn't expecting to. Like, like, I, like I, love, I love the concept of research and doing, and doing book research, but actually talking to the people. I mean, I'm not a, um, you know, even though I spend my life in front of large groups of people, I'm not a particularly social person. Um, however, I actually found the conversations really interesting. And um, I think w- what was interesting about them was, how uh, how willing people were to share what they'd learned and how um, the conversation didn't always go as predicted. Were the people within your direct network or the old Kevin Bacon of three steps removed or five steps to Kevin Bacon, whatever that is, or were you able to access people outside of your network who you thought would be really valuable contributors for their perspective? Initially we kind of reached out to our... Um, out to our network. But I think one of the things that we did was useful was whenever we interviewed someone, it was like, okay, who are the five people you know we should talk to? Um, and, you know, that you know that very quickly your network starts doing laps of the planet and getting you into industries and, and openings that, that you can't even predict you can get into, uh, which I think was really interesting. I, I mean, would you agree, Kate? Yeah, yeah. And, look, we could have kept going. But at some point you draw a line in the sand, uh, which is one of the skills, implementation, is you you have to implement, you know, again, how do you take collective wisdom and package it in a way people can get to it quickly? We eventually made a call that, you know, we'd be writing war and peace at some point if we we didn't stop. Uh, But we're going to do a podcast as well to keep some of those fascinating conversations going and to really reach out to really diverse and different people and it's one of the things we really wanted to put in the book so many books have quite a singular uh frame and they get a singular import and we really wanted broad we really wanted to dig wide and wide and deep like the first skill in the book is the is the capacity to generate insights and one of the observations we make is that that data isn't an answer it's input and actually you need to develop a capacity to make meaning out of information um, and so insight is really interesting, but again, different people achieve insight in different ways, you know, so, you know, we, we want to talk to a demographer, a futurist, a, a police profiler, a comedian, um, you know, people who, who have this forever skill of insight, but have applied it in different ways. 
and have generated different tools that sort of support that skill as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to give people uh, the context of the, the skills and how you've broken them down, there's so Dan, 12 skills clustered into three categories. What are they and why are they important? What we wanted to do is to make it make it useful and make it portable. I mean, the 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 skills that we identified, you know, as Kieran's sort of alluded to, we could have gone on and on and on. Um, but what we looked at was there were three, three kind of categories: creativity, communication skills, and uh, control skills. And that's kind of a way we bucketed this this information in such a way that it was you know, you could grasp it and, and get a sense of it. And and so within within things like things like creativity, you've got the need to to be able to generate insights, to to solve problems in new and interesting ways and to develop a kind of a, a behavioral or or cognitive agility. In other words, to be adaptable and flexible in the way that you think. One of the things that I think or we've tried to do in the book is to demonstrate using different industry examples of cognitive flexibility or agility might look like. And I think what that does is it allows people to not see something like creativity as a skill that belongs in the creative industries necessarily, but it's actually something that's universally applicable. And when you see it as a discipline rather than as a talent, um, that changes your your context around that. And I think that was really the, for Kieran and I, we debated for a long time whether it was skills or characteristics or traits Um and the definition we used for skills was something that had commercial or social value that could also be learned and developed. And so that's how we define skill. Um, and something like creativity can be learned. And then in communication, you've obviously got things like how do you how do you generate influence? You know, either as a as a leader, uh, someone who wants to um, to generate a social change of some kind or even as a, as a parent or as a team member how do you how do you create influence how do you build teams team building again is about understanding what are the different team dynamics how do people work with each other what does politics look like um, and then things like control skills we looked at things like self-control but also how do we how do we manage resources and resources aren't always things that are tangible sometimes uh, resource management is intangible. How do you manage time? How do you manage perception? How do you, how do you manage um, people's energy? And as Kieran said earlier, how do you how do you generate a capacity to to implement to execute, even though the information you've you've garnered may be incomplete or you may not feel fully prepared? How do you uh, find enough control to execute anyway? And Kieran, from your perspective, do you do people need to develop all of these twelve skills, or does the the context or complexities of different work situations determine the specific skills that people should give focus or attention. I think it's quite an interesting question to go: what do what do I have? What could I add? And what do I think would be most useful to me? But I think a lot of them are fairly broad. And for most people, as we go into the future, if you think we always say, uh, you know, if we can replicate it, they'll automate it. So if you what you do day to day in your job, people can go to work and go, what things are really repetitive that I do constantly? AI will probably take that aspect of their work fairly confidently in the next 10 or so years. But what do I do that's not replicable? And those I think a lot of these skills are those things. And, you know, it's hard to get a robot to uh, give you self-control, to not eat that chocolate donut 
to make, although we may have some technology that sucks chocolate donut fat out of you. But I still think there's going to be, you know, a, a level of self-control needed. And, and, you know, funny, the control ones for us were probably the most lacking. So what was interesting was the people we talked to that had were high in control, uh, we found that probably the most challenging uh, ones personally. So I think it's a really interesting question for people as they read to go, where, where can I also add and learn? So the tendency is to go, well, I'm really good at that already uh, and to rely on that. We tend to do that as human beings. We tend to use our go-to skills, whereas our weaknesses, if we can make a difference to the weakness, we can actually have exponential growth and exponential result. So I would say, yes, there'll be some you need more, but also look at the ones you have a natural resistance to and think about developing those. And I think what we looked for is what, what's going to be universally useful so that if you're going to invest in your education, and you absolutely should for your entire life, what should you study? Like, like I mean, I can code in COBOL because I was a computer nerd in the 1980s. Now, coding in COBOL is a completely useless skill in 2019. Coding has changed and coding still exists. But again, even that very technical skill was very short-lived. And I think what we're saying is part of the, you know, whatever the suite of, of education you engage with, you know, for your entire life, it makes sense to invest in things that will be eternally applicable. And, and as Kieran said, one of the things that we found really successful people said was it wasn't their technical skill or even their uh, expert knowledge in a particular area. Oftentimes it was their capacity to create influence in that field which is a forever skill um, that actually made the biggest difference. So, again, to, you know, those technical um, short-lived skills make you competent, but what makes you a leader is those skills that are sort of more forever skills-based. I found myself, as I was reading the book, just being reminded constantly of a, of a quote by Mike Tyson, which said that everyone has a plan when they step in the ring until they get punched in the face. <laughs> For me, it was the thing that tied all of those three clusters together of creativity, communication, control was that ability to say, okay, I thought this was going to happen. This has now changed and I need to have these skills to be able to manage that change positively and effectively. And all of those skills interrelate so beautifully to do that. You know, in our own meanderings on the book, well, if it's forever, what would happen if we ended up back in the, you know, in the dark days? Or if, it, if there's a dystopian kind of, you know, catastrophe, would these skills fundamentally still be useful? Uh, so it became this interesting conversation around, because uh, we went for, phys- we had a debate around physical health and whether you know, maintaining mental and physical health was a forever skill. And uh, we did, we thought, well, robots may be able to do a lot of it. So self-control became, I guess, the expression of that, but not it, it wasn't a singular skill. So we really tried to make sure that they would be applicable no matter what situation you found yourself in. We were thinking, if Skynet takes over and there's a nuclear war and World War Three happens, can we still make book sales? Well, from, from one reader's perspective, the answer is yes. And we have spoken about artificial intelligence, and that's only one significant part of change or, or the disruptive economy that we're moving into. What else is driving this change and need for us to be more autonomous and entrepreneurial in a more modern-day workplace? That's a, that's a really big question. I think, I think there's a couple of things going on. One of the things that we've found is 
change is the, is kind of the big contextual word that we work with, um, regardless of who we're working with and 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 the mode of delivery, whether we're speaking or training. And rarely do people say, "Yeah, the big issue is with our technology." It's almost always at a human level. You know, we talk about the fact that in order to make positive change, we need to make the change itself positive. Um, and I think that that's that's something we often forget in in that process. You're right, Andrew. There is a, a shift, both socially and economically, where you know we're kind of um, seeing this rise of new tribalism, and communities are forming along different lines. You know, we used to form communities geographically uh, or demographically. You know, we used to make friends with people who lived within you know a short distance of us. Now those communities are being built across the planet and are more psychographically defined. So we're seeing those kind of changes, but we're also seeing, as you mentioned, Andrew, a rise in in entrepreneurship where the barriers to entry uh, as a startup in business are much lower than they ever were. I think economically we're seeing a shift from very narrow skills-based workforce, which has kind of only existed since the first industrial revolution, so for just over 100 years, um, towards a, a more broader skilled where more and more people are having a leadership role, even if that's just a thought leadership role within their own tribe or within their own community. So I think I think it's a, a number of things. You're right. It's not just technology. There's also these these social and economic shifts that are changing the way we need to do change. And I think human beings, our expectations are changing on how we should be treated, what kind of standard of living we want, particularly in the developed world. And then, you know, there's obviously environmental shifts that none of us can ignore. Well, some of us are trying to ignore, but most, but at some point won't be able to ignore. And that's going to really change our world. And I guess, the, I mean, again, it's a relatively short piece, period of history where we could live in a very resource-rich, disposable world. But food, water, air, all those things, it's why resource management became really interesting in the book and why conversion actually in a creative skill becomes really fascinating because conversion is the ability to, you know, to turn one thing into another To and it can be mental ultimately but it also it can be physical and a lot of growth industries at the moment are industries that reuse something that's underutilized or reimagine the utilization of it and I think that we're going to see more of that and I think it's one of the reasons people need these skills because all of a sudden they go well you can't just dredge raw resource out of the planet anymore you're going to be held to task at some point to that what can you do with what we have and how do you re-engineer it in a new way and I think the fundamental structure of organisations would would fit into that explanation as well, in the sense that it's no longer that leader top down as you know the CEO is more important than the CFO who's more important than the COO, and so people can make an impact or create positive change from anywhere in the organisation if they give themselves the authority to do that, and these skills help just position people to think about that for themselves really beautifully. What advice would you give the sceptic who might be listening and thinking, well, that's that's great, I get it, but I'm sitting in an organisation that's fractured into a thousand pieces, siloed, and essentially has recognition and reward systems based on head down, lots of hours, get the job done, follow the boss, and I don't know how to step up and, and step out of that sort of environment to start to practice these skills. 
we work with a lot of those. Uh, we spend time in those some of those organisations who, you know, there's a lot of disillusioned people in jobs that they don't feel heard and seen and they don't feel able to make a difference. And I think for us it, it's, you know, how do you how do you stop going the system's broken? And and it might be, but it's not a very, our friend Chris Helder calls it a useful belief. It's not a useful perspective to take. You know, a defeatist attitude won't change anything. So we always say just find that, find the, try to find the one thing. You know, but most people make the mistake with change of trying to change too much at once. And we, you know, we're, we're suddenly going on a whole new way of eating and living and, you know, we and we fail because we resort back to old habits. And we say pick a little fight, pick a small thing, make a difference here, get a win, you know, gather people to you and uh, you'll be amazed how you can turn around even a fractured culture. And, Dan, for you just... How have you seen these future skills occurring in your client-facing work? To be honest, it, it's probably what's driving a lot of our work. A lot of um, a lot of the organisations we work with have very, very smart technical people who maybe lack creativity, who maybe lack uh, people skills. So that's you know that fuels a lot of our our training work. Um, we, we're actually a lot of the time contracted to help people go from being a very technically smart professional to being a an innovative and engaging leader. Um, so a lot of the work we do is, is, is about helping people make that next step beyond technical capability into a leadership position. Kieran, apart from going out and buying a book, which I'd highly recommend people do, and we'll include a, a link to the book in the show notes, what practical steps would you recommend people could take to future-proof themselves and their teams so that they're fit for the future of work? At the end of the book, we say to people, we'd love to you to think about and talk about with your teams and organisations, what are, what are your forever skills? So this, obviously these we've tried to make these the big, broad universals, but are there some for your role, business, industry that, um, a little more specific, I guess. And what are they? And we'd love to hear them because we think there's, you know, there's more of these forever skills than, than 12. We've tried to make it 12 for simplicity and ease of, you know, transfer. But to just start having a conversation because the minute you start having a perspective of what will stay and what will we keep and what's worth keeping, uh, people really see change differently and you, you see a fundamental shift. And, you know, we know when people are panicked, they shut down and they're actually unable to problem solve and think and do the best work they can possibly do. So we go go find your forever skills. Go and seek them out, talk about them and, you know, and start using them to actually drive your innovation and to provide perspective and much-needed perspective so you can stop panicking and start doing just great work that makes a difference you want to make on the planet. And I think that's the ultimate benefit is to help people reframe change. You know, as we say in the, the beginning of the book, has always been said, change is the only certainty in life. And yet very few of us have, have invested a lot of time in how to do change well. And again, we, we approach change too narrowly in our belief. And actually by broadening our perspective and changing the frame that we view change through, we actually get a greater sense of power about it as well. Dan and Kieran, this podcast is called The Messy Middle. 
to recognise that when doing the work that matters to us and motivates us, we always hit, hit this hard part and it's in this moment that really good leaders tend to find a way rather than lose their way. So I just wanted to finish by asking you both and maybe, Dan, if I could start with you, what messy middle have you had to deal with recently and how did you transcend it and what did you learn from it? The things that I've struggled with is I, I've, I've become quite successful quite quickly in the different careers and roles I've had. And one of the problems with being competent too quickly is there's a sense that you didn't earn it. So for instance, when I first started doing stand-up comedy when I was 30 years of age, I sort of did my first open mic and I had a paid gig at the end of that week. So I didn't do a year of unpaid open mics. I didn't, you know, earn my stripes. I didn't get I didn't die on stage enough for me to get used to it. And I think for me that's been a pattern I've repeated in life where I've gone from um, a standing start to professional very quickly. And I think one of the things that Kieran and I have tried to do in the past year is stabilise our business and create, you know, multiple pillars of income so that it's not so much based on on just offering one particular service. And I think what that requires is a willingness to to challenge and reduce your ego, which I find deeply confronting as Kieran will attest. So I think I think for me that's kind of been been my messy middle is is finding a way to get my ego out of the way. Great. Thank you. And Kieran, is there something that stands out for you? Uh, uh well, you know, I think life is a messy middle. Uh for me it's it's been really challenging being willing to give stuff up. So Dan and I have broad interests and we can help in so many ways and there's so many workshops we want to run with companies and so many books we want to write and speeches we want to give that it actually costs or has cost clarity sometimes and a willingness to give some stuff up. And I think the messy middle is what will you be known for? You know, we we teach it around you can't be everything to everyone and you can't possibly ever communicate the depth of knowledge that we all have and, you know, and committing for us to something and locking it in and going, well, you know, we, we're going to help people do change better. So to commit to that's been really messy middle because it means giving up other things. Thank you both so much. It's been a, a brilliant conversation and I want to thank you firstly for just such a meaningful book that that proves in the in the face of unrelenting change which we're we're faced with now there are some stable skills that we can turn to and future proof ourselves for the to be fit for the future of work and more importantly just for your time and insights and openness and I have to say jealously your serious savvy throughout this conversation reminding us that we we just need to look beyond you know, the change around us to focus on the change of things that won't change within us. So for for both of you, thank you. It's been outstanding. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this episode and think it will be good company for your drive home, commute on the train or mental fuel during your daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform or head to andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast and if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content 
videos, or recommended reading that's going to help you move your mental furniture around people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.